Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Today we have a very interesting and very necessary, timely topic. We're going to be talking about capacity today, the ability to make decisions on your own behalf, both medical, financial, and otherwise. But before we talk about that, we're going to discuss with one of our past guests, Dr. Ermina Van Dyken, a very quick discussion on top 10 reasons that what we choose to eat can mean all the difference between seeing her and she is a surgeon and not needing to see her. Nothing personal, Dr. Ermina. I don't want to be on your operating table. Now, there's an exciting event that's coming up you're going to tell us about. But what are some of the reasons that what we eat and, and makes a huge difference? And what are the things that we should be potentially minimizing or in some cases avoiding? Thanks, Kathy. So as you said, I'm a surgeon. I use the scalpel quite a bit. Despite that, I really feel that what we eat is everything as far as our diet, our overall health. Honestly, over 90% of what I do as far as surgery is a consequence of diet. You're scaring me. Okay. Well, it's good news. Good news. So what kind of surgeries do you do often? Are we talking about like having gallbladders out or having other types of problems like even cancer surgeries at times? Yeah. So I'm a general surgeon. Um, surgeries that I do a lot of are gallbladder surgeries, um, colon surgeries, so diverticulitis, colon cancers, that kind of thing. Hemorrhoid surgery is another big one I do a lot of. Um, and then there's other surgeries, like surgeries for obesity, um, surgeries for ulcers due to diabetes and the complications of diabetes, and a lot of that stuff really is uh, reversible or preventable with diet. Okay, so I don't think I want to have surgery. How do I avoid it? What are some things that we could avoid in our diet that would help us? So there's been a lot of really good studies that show that avoiding meat, especially red meat and processed meat, actually improves your health. So all in all, a plant-based diet, a vegetarian diet, will improve your health overall. Uh, my talk that I'm talking about at the the festival we're going to get to this weekend is 10 ways that you can avoid my scalpel with a plant-based diet. Um, I always joke, you know, I want to be put out of business. Unfortunately, I know that's not going to be true, but I, I don't want to do surgery. I, I wish nobody needed surgery and, you know, that would make me a very happy person. And this plant-based diet thing really, to me, is a winner for many of these things. So give me a little preview on what are some of the things that can keep us from being your patient, nothing personal. Okay, I can do that. Now, I'm not going to give you all of my 10 ways because no, I don't want to spoil it. A little it. in suspense, right. <laughs> so I'll start with the number one thing, the number one killer of Americans that's heart disease. So heart disease last year in 2015 killed over 640,000 Americans in our country. I can throw numbers at you all I want, but if you think about it, the top reason for a loved one to die, our family member, our close friends, is going to be heart disease. There's some really good research showing that a plant-based diet can not only prevent but reverse heart disease. Dean Ornish and his group and a lot of other followers, they showed that. Yeah, and they now actually have a couple of different locations. I think Ikahi Health and I think Straub Medical Center have a Dean Ornish dietary program or the Ornish program that people can sign up to do because there's a lot of studies that have shown that it can reverse the effects of heart disease. If you've already had a heart attack or if you have this really strong family history and you want to avoid it, that there are certain foods you can eat that will significantly lower your chances of having a problem. That's exactly true. And the beautiful thing, too, is Medicare and HMSA will pay for it if you meet criteria. So this is a well-funded program 
Um, and not only heart disease, in that matter of fact, you can actually go if you have any issues with diabetes, if you have high blood pressure, if you meet certain criteria, you can be a part of this program. And it's a beautiful program. Now, when people hear about being a vegetarian versus being a vegan versus doing all these different things, what is it? What's the difference? What does it really mean? What are we talking about? So being vegetarian, you know, there's many different types of vegetarian. There is lacto-ovo vegetarian where you eat eggs and dairy. Um, there is strict vegetarian or vegan. And kind of the new trendy word for that is plant-based. And what that means is basically only plants and whole foods. So I always tell people you can be a junk food vegetarian. You know, Oreos are, they're vegan. Uh, French fries, are those healthy for you? Absolutely not. So you really have to kind of choose your, your food wisely. So be careful what you're eating because if you eat too much of anything, really, then you could increase your cholesterol and or you could cause other consequences, increase blood sugar, do a variety of different things that are potentially damaging to your body. If not immediately, then later on down the road. That's absolutely right. And the one thing to remember is um, everything plant-based that doesn't come from an animal has no cholesterol. So it may not be healthy for you, but you are going to have zero cholesterol in your diet if you stick to a plant-based diet. So give me another one. I want one more. Okay. I want one more of your top 10 reasons. Okay. I want at least 20%. Give me two. Okay. I'll start with the number two then is going to be breast and prostate cancer. Those have been very well linked to diet, um, especially high fat cholesterol and obesity. So one of the ways to try and prevent having breast cancer, prostate cancer, which, by the way, is our discussion next week on The Body Show, is to really focus on diet and to try and find ways to integrate more plants and less fat, less cholesterol, less animal products in your diet. That's exactly right. So now you're going to be giving a lecture telling us the rest of those reasons. Uh, give me the details, when, where, and how. Yeah, so there's a really cool thing happening this weekend. It's the Veg Fast Oahu. It's the first one ever in Hawaii. Um, it's this Saturday from 1 to 6.30 p.m. It's at Honolulu Hale. It's a free event, free parking. It's going to be a whole bunch of fun. There's going to be a family-friendly affair. Um, there's going to be a lot of plant-based food from local restaurants. We're going to do cooking demos. We're going to be inspiring speakers. Um, hopefully my talk is a little inspiring. Uh, there's going to be 40 booths, exhibits. There's going to be live music. It's going to be a whole bunch of fun. So you can promise me that eating a plant-based diet, you can actually make it taste good. I can promise you that. Absolutely. I'm going to hold you to that. Okay. I'll cook for you. You know, you heard it live. Dr. Ermina Van Dyken is going to cook for me. That's fantastic. So if people want to know more, do they have to register? Can they just show up? Is this just an open event? Do we need to know who's coming? You can just show up. You can absolutely park. Just show up. If you can't make it, there is a website, www.vegfestoahu.com, and you can join it. We'll update you about upcoming veggie festivals and all sorts of really cool information. And so it's welcome to those who eat the plant-based diet, even if they don't learn more about it, if you do eat eggs or if you don't, it, welcome to everybody. Absolutely. There's no judgment in this forum. All right. And you're going to tell everybody those other eight reasons why watching what they eat can make a huge difference and help people prevent having surgery if that's possible. Is, is it ever too late? Is there ever a point where you're like, nope, you can't change your diet now? Or is there always hope no matter how old we are? There's always hope. All right. Said from the mouth of Dr. Ermina Van Dyken, who is going to be giving this event. She's going to be one of the guest lecturers who is at the very first, hopefully annual and well-attended Hawaii Veg Fest. Let's talk about vegetables and what they can do for our lives. All right. Well, speaking of never being too late, we're going to be talking 
about something else really important today. What do you do if your elderly parents or grandparents, aunties or uncles are now needing more help than they ever used to? How can we protect their interests while respecting their level of independence and understanding of their medical condition and help them take care of themselves? Is there ever a time when it is too late? Well, we're going to find out more. Dr. Tiffany Ann Yamamoto is here from Hawaii Center for Psychology. She specializes in something called capacity evaluations. She's joined by our legal expert, Emily Kawashima-Waters, who has seen what it happens when the issues of conservatorship, guardianship, trustees, capacity, when it goes well and absolutely when it doesn't. Now, as always, we are live in the studio and you can join us if you have a question about a loved one and you're worried about something going on or you're just concerned about how much they understand about their medical condition, you can join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Dr. Tiffany, my legal expert, Emily, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you. Thank you. Now, I want to do a quick shout-out. It was my friend, Dr. Martin Johnson. He was the one who called me and said, hey, listen, we have to do this show because this is a huge, important thing that's going on in the community, and there's a lot of people. We're all getting older, and we need to make sure that we do our best to take care of ourselves, our future needs, our current needs, and really try and set things up to be the most successful in our lives as we can. As we get older and we need help, we need to have these things taken care of. And I see people all the time. And sometimes as they get older, their ability to make decisions, their ability to understand their medical illnesses, their ability to just even pay their taxes is often difficult and impaired. And what do we do with these folks? So let's talk first with Dr. Tiffany Ann Yamamoto. You deal with this situation a lot. People often will ask you, does this person have the ability to make decisions for themselves? What is technically the term capacity? What does it mean? And how do you go about evaluating someone for that? Mm -hmm. And uh, with capacity assessments, when a a clinician such as myself, a clinical psychologist, is looking at it, it will be possibly very different from um, Emily's or a lawyer's standpoint. Uh, But when I do get a referral, either for a grandma, grandpa, or themselves, we want to be able to understand whether or not this individual has the ability to understand and receive information in a way that can help them independently manage their own medical decisions, uh, live independently, or manage their finances. So like I may have a person who I see in my office Mm -hmm. and I start to notice that they're missing some things. Maybe they're missing to take their medications or maybe they're not grooming themselves. And I start to notice maybe they're slipping a little. And I want to know, can they still live independently? Can they be successful on their own? Or are we dealing with a potential need for placement in a care facility or extra involvement of kids or people to come into the home. So I'll see them on a medical basis and I'll be Mm -hmm. able to tell pretty quickly, are they taking their medicine? Are they taking care of themselves? And when I find out that maybe they don't have that ability, then you might be able to evaluate them and figure out if they really can make a decision because grandma may not want to leave her house that she's lived in for the last 50 years. It may not be safe for her to do that, but she may be insistent. And the rest of the family steps back and says, okay, we'll let grandma decide. And Mm -hmm. it may not be safe. So at what point 
would you be able to, how would you determine if it's okay for grandma in the scenario to stay in her house versus she doesn't really have the capacity to make that decision? She's, mm-hmm. she's not thinking correctly or able to decide on her own. How do we know that? So there's a lot of things that you had mentioned in there that (laughs) I threw you under the bus. All of it. I like that. That um, this is why it's so important to have a specialist who knows about capacity evaluations with this specific population because it's so important to make not only the family members feel comfortable. Um, but also the individual that maybe were either seeking an assessment on their behalf or maybe they themselves are looking for an assessment. Because uh, the way that I would do that, it's very thorough, um, where we look at objective measures of cognitive functioning. So in other words, how well the brain is able to understand and process new information. But a key area that I'm looking at is memory. Lots of memory changes, and they can happen for a number of reasons. People are stressed. We'll kind of forget that we'll, that's where we left our keys or we'll forget to pay the bills. But where it becomes a higher concern is if there is a threat to their safety uh, because it's, it's very different if they forget to take their medication and they either take it twice or forget to take it at all. could be dangerous yes, in a lot of situations. Yeah. Sure. And, and doing an interview, while it can be helpful, it's not – a thorough enough assessment to be able to make that um, very important decision of whether or not a loved one can live on their own. Uh, so when I do see patients for this type of testing, in addition to doing the cognitive assessment, as I mentioned, and memory, I'm also looking at the functionality of it. Um, so what that means is that it's different when you're answering questions, you may know the answers. Um, In my office, what we do is kind of have them carry out the task. So they may understand that they have to pay bills. Um, And this is very standardized evaluations and assessments that we're doing in the office. Um, So what I'll do next is have them pretend to write a bill. Like write you a check. Yes, yes. And, you know, seeing them kind of just look at it and the confusion on their face, it's very much what would happen Well, right. And I feel like often I'm fooled. I mean, I will see somebody for, boy, I've been at Straub for like 17 years now. So I'll see some folks that I saw in the very beginning. And so I'll know them and they always come and they look well and Mm -hmm. they look as though they're well taken care of and they present themselves well. And I have been blown away on more than one occasion when they've come in with a family member. And I've had a couple of situations where I've had a daughter say, Grandma's been a victim to a scam. And I know you don't know, but she can't remember, like, what year it is. And she seems like she's doing fine. She's all dressed up. She looks good. But she's on the phone talking to people in other countries, sending them money and giving them her credit card because they're nice people on the phone. In that sort of a situation where you are seeing people become victimized to scams, whether it be from other countries, or unfortunately, sometimes that can happen in their own family. You know, there might be an extended family member who wants money, who wants something and or needs a place to stay. There could be this situation going on that's kind of, it's a little dicey. And here I am as a medical doctor saying, can I really get involved in Mm -hmm. this? I guess I should let the family members know. But what is the role of the physician in this? Because it's not medically dangerous. That's when it becomes a legal concern. And I know a few years back, we've had some folks on talking about what happens in the legal world world and 
how people can be reported in the adult uh, intake center on abuse, victimization of fraud, etc. What do we do? Let's pretend that I see this person in my office. Emily Kawashima Waters, you're a legal expert. When I when I see this and witness this in my office and I have questions, there's a lot of consequences to someone being victimized financially. What should I do? Well, I guess the, from a legal perspective, the, the first question I would have is you have a, a patient physician privilege, right? And that's something that you know, can also, as you say, be dicey if you want to bring in other family members. So that's definitely a consideration. Um, I have had cases where the treating physician has made a report to Adult Protective Services when they think there has been caregiver abuse or something, something to the effect that you think somebody else needs to get involved. And so that's another option, although they are very busy and they tend to uh, focus on the more extreme and urgent matters. So there are places that we could go to. I know that there's um, the there's like a center for elder abuse where we can take a look at it online. And, you know, we've had we've even had like Keith Conishiro come in a few years ago and say, here's what you do. Here's who you contact. Here's who you get involved. Because you're right. Sometimes there is that confidentiality, that privilege. And if if I hear from my patient that they're actually giving money to other family members, I may not have any ability and or any right to say anything about that unless it starts to affect their medical health Mm -hmm. or unless the person expresses that they're having concerns about this. And that's when it becomes more of an issue that relates to my field of expertise, in which case I feel I can take some actions and, and let people know. Social workers do wonderful things. They can also help negotiate some of these issues as well. Now, let's go through a little scenario. And what we'll do is, and and I'll give you guys a few moments to think about it, but I want to sort of describe, like, when you would see somebody, what sort of things you would do. And if you determine that they did not have the ability to make their own decisions, how can we best help that individual so that we can protect their right to be independent as long as possible, but also protect them on the back end and make sure that there aren't any issues legally that could put them in trouble should their spouse pass away and the person who is still alive has some memory issues and family members kind of want to help out, but they don't quite know what sort of arrangements to make. So these, this, it's a whole, like, black box that I don't know anything about. So when we come back, we're going to come up with some real live scenarios on how this affects family members and maybe someone you love right now that you're wondering what you should do about this. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. I'm here in the studio with Dr. Tiffany Yamamoto and also with uh, legal expert Emily Kawashima Waters. And we are talking about capacity, how to know if grandma knows what's going on Or if grandpa's gone, how do we take care of our loved ones and not put them in a scenario that's unsafe? If you have family members who have been in this situation or you have some some ideas on how you handled it together as a group of family and loved ones, we'd love to hear what what you've done. We can all learn from one another. You can call us at any time, 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back with real live examples in just a minute. Stay with us. This. HPR's 4,600 sustaining members make automatic monthly contributions to this station from their bank accounts. These contributions continue until they let us know they'd like to stop or change the amount. Learn more about how you, too, can keep your membership always current and your support for HPR 
constant. Visit us online or call us during business hours, 955-8821. And thanks. She wore a jersey blouse that looked one way when she was at home and another way when she was anywhere away from home. Everything about her had two sides to it, one for home and one for anywhere that was not home. I'm David Sedaris. Join me this week on Selected Shorts from PRI Public Radio International. Tuesday at 5 p.m. following Travel with Rick Steves. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Straub Clinic and Hospital and Gourmet Events Hawaii. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Tiffany Ann Yamamoto. She is from the Hawaii Center for Psychology. She's a clinical psychologist with expertise in determining capacity. Do people know exactly what's going on and do they understand their role in taking care of themselves, both medically and financially? I'm also joined by Emily Kawashima Waters, and she is a legal expert who has the expertise in how to set things up so that disastrous things don't happen, how to plan ahead so that all the care needs for our loved ones can kind of seamlessly be transitioned so that we don't have to worry about what happens if grandma or grandpa gets dementia. We already have a plan in place to take care of that. Now, as promised, we are going to do real live examples. And so if you have one, if someone you love has had a situation where you have some advice and or just describe some of the things that might have happened, it always shocks me when I hear about some of these issues. And yet it really goes on out there. You can give us a holler at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now, Dr. Tiffany, I'm sure you've had situations where you found that someone does not have capacity to make decisions for themselves because they just have a memory issue or a brain issue, or maybe they've had strokes and they can't understand. Walk me through what we would do if you discovered that a loved one just couldn't be in charge of their own matters anymore. Mm -hmm. If they were previously living independently, taking care of themselves, and now you discover they can't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, what's really nice is that there, in recent years, has really been a movement for capacity assessments to be more specific in different areas. Um, So you're common, and you mentioned that there are some evaluations where we will find that there's certain areas where grandma or grandpa isn't able to independently live alone. Um, But when I'm looking at an evaluation, what I'm also incorporating is some of their values. So maybe uh, I'm thinking of a particular patient uh, that I'll uh, make sure the identity is. Namelessly tell us, okay. Um, A 90-year-old female who is living with her family members where her idea of she wanted to live independently um, also meant, though, that her family would help her manage the medication. So in that area, she could still make choices of where she wanted to live. She could be left home alone because there wasn't a high risk um, of either self-harm or running away. And she also knew how to kind of manage different household safety issues, like turning off the stove. So she's still able to retain those abilities. But because of her memory impairments, 
uh, she, it was very difficult for her to maintain other areas of capacity, such as managing her own finances. Um, so that's an area where we would work with family members to really get them linked up to the right resources of the next steps um, to determine whether or not maybe they'd like to petition for a guardianship and conservatorship. Um, so what's nice is that after receiving an evaluation, um, even if I'm finding that an individual may have diminished capacity in a certain area, um, in this par- particular case, it's, it was up to the family of what they wanted to do next. It doesn't mean that rights get taken away immediately. They can contact their lawyer to plan um, and really get linked up with the right services if they wish. So what you're talking about is there's a difference between saying, is someone able to medically take care of themselves? Can they make a decision on where they want to live? And also, can they be financially able to take care of themselves? So those decisions could be separate. They might be able to get up, get dressed, and cook their own food, not leave the stove on, but maybe they can't manage their medications. And unfortunately, it's, it's the fault of people like myself. You know, we have these older patients. They have multiple medical conditions. They're on like 10 different pills. And it's difficult. I mean, for any of us, it would be hard to time all that. So... There can be varying levels of capacity for different particular issues. Exactly. Okay. And And that may be where it starts to get a little bit muddied because it seems like grandma is okay to get dressed and shower herself. Mm -hmm. But boy, she's handing out money to strangers and maybe she has some medical capacity, but maybe not that financial capacity. So those things don't have to be the same. No, not necessarily. Okay. We're going to talk about the legal aspect of guardianship in just a moment. First, Julie from Kona is on the line. Welcome to The Body Show, Julie. Hi. Hi Um, there. My question is, can you hear me? We can hear you really well. What can we do for you? Okay. My question is about a, um, my mother is continuing to get um, more incapacitated as far as her memory, but it seems like the more that she's unable to do things, the more that she's in denial. Mm-hmm. And so she is she's becoming more obstinate and more um, unwilling to discuss. Uh, there's lots of different episodes, but I don't know how much the doctor or the legal person needs to know. I guess my, my concern is that um, we, we don't have much footing. She lives on her, on her own. She lives by herself in her own house. She has um, allowed us to help pay bills, but she doesn't need a lot of medication. She doesn't take much medication except for maybe something to help her mood. Um, she has has had episodes with the neighbors where she's accused them of doing things and taking things. And there's lots of delusional episodes where she is imagining things happening that are not happening. Mm-hmm. And um, we know that she can't do things because she'll sort of admit that she can't, but then if we were to push the issue of you need help, she gets real angry. So it sounds like you're stuck in a really tight spot, Julie. Your mom, as her memory gets worse, she's becoming sort of more combative and accusatory and suspicious of the neighbors. And no, I couldn't have left my purse somewhere. They must have come in and stolen it. And of course they did such a thing. So, so now it's, absolutely. So now you've got a situation where not only do you question, does she have the ability to live by herself, but how do you intervene when she refuses to do anything else? And what is your ability if she's in this situation to make any changes? So Emily, I'm going to ask you a question here because this is a real important one. 
this is Jolie's mom. Legally, Jolie's mom is an adult, as is Jolie. So when we have situations where elderly loved ones are seeming to be more medically fragile and or doing things that are associated with progressive forms of dementia, does Julie have any legal rights to change anything here? Well, it sounds like this is a, is a kind of a touchy area or, or a time period because in order to obtain a conservatorship or guardianship under Hawaii's law, there's a very uh, extensive system that I think is in place to guarantee that somebody's rights aren't improperly taken away from them. And so in order for the court to even entertain a petition for conservatorship or guardianship, which means... Um, Which means Julie's in charge now. Of the finances as well as the health decisions. The court requires a physician's letter that states very clearly the capacity and um, the prognosis and the how long the physician or the uh, psychologist has been treating this person. And then from that step on, the court will then hire or not hire, will assign um, what's called a cocoa Kanavai, which is a helper of the court. And it's an, it, that person is an attorney and will do an independent evaluation and investigation of the circumstances surrounding uh, the protected person's um, situation. So, like, maybe speak to the neighbors and find out. They will. Hey, is she doing something weird? Are you seeing Julie's mom out naked, right. you know, at three? Not that she is Julie. I'm sorry, but just we're giving examples. And, like, you know, she's screaming in the middle of the night and saying somebody stole something. Then, therefore, now we have a problem and not just Julie saying it, but there's also other non-involved parties, non-involved meaning not in any way going to take over. That's right. And the Cocoa Conovai is also authorized as uh, essentially full subpoena power to look at the protected person's uh, medical records, psychological records. Everything is uh, filed under seal, so it's confidential. But the Cocoa Conovai then prepares a confidential report to the judge in the probate court uh, commenting on whether it is appropriate. And one of the things, so for the situation, um, one of the things that they can do is offer a tailored version of a conservatorship or guardianship such that it's not a full-blown taking away the powers. It might be limited to, for instance, just writing bills or um, monitoring medication. And then the court can also set up you know, biannual, annual types of uh, review sessions. So there's all of these sort of checks and balances in place when it comes to the conservatorships and guardianships. So, Julie, it sounds like step one is talk to your mom's doctor with your mom, um, because the doctor may not be able to talk with you without your mom present or without your mom's permission. So often in my office, the easiest way to figure that out is say, you bring your mom in to go see her doctor so that you're in the office. And if your mom... Uh, lets you stay in the exam room, then you can kind of say to the doctor, hey, here are some of the things that I'm noticing. If the doctor says, oh, really? Wow. Like, I've been surprised before. I'm like, really? Your mom's doing what? She's letting in random strangers and buzzing them in the front door of the condo for no reason? Why? So I've been surprised when I've had family members come in during patient evaluations. And if the doctor agrees that your mom is not of the ability to manage her own issues medically or financially, then it sounds like the next step would be here you are, you have this letter, and now it's going to be, do I need to take over for mom? And that becomes a dicey issue because if mom's obstinate and or if she's you know, yelling or aggressive or refuses to let you do it, then you might have to proceed with seeing a lawyer and getting this whole thing set up to be her conservator or guardian 
to be in charge of all of her issues. So it sounds like you're in the beginning of a long road, Julie. Yeah. Is there a way to to force them to be evaluated, to be to be seen by their physician? She sort of started. Um, she doesn't go to doctors anymore. She won't go to her doctor. Well, I she guess and. I mean, the only other thing that I could say is, and I'm just going to pull this out of a hat and say, you could potentially call Adult Protective Services on your mother because Adult Protective Services would start doing an evaluation anonymously. Your mother would not know who called them. And they would start doing an investigation to say, hey, is this woman safe? Is she safe in her environment? Is she acting out at the neighbors? Is she living in a house that is clean and or can she manage things on her own? And they would probably reach out to you as well and say, what is your mom able to do? What is she not able to do? So if she doesn't even go out of the house to see doctors, that may be why she's not on a lot of pills because she hasn't seen us and maybe that's a good thing. But on the other hand, if you're looking at taking this the next step, then you need to have some other person intervene and say, We've got a report. We need to evaluate and investigate, and we've got to do something. If you can't get her to come, you've got to bring the services to her. So that would be the first thing I would say. Dr. Tiffany, do you have any other thoughts? Yeah, and, and, and Julie, I, I just want to mention, uh, first of all, that your mother is very fortunate that she has such a strong support network because I know it is very challenging for families, especially when we find that our, our parents who we feel our, our heroes um, start to have challenges with memories where we then, the children, have to become the caregivers. It's very frustrating and, and frightening. And I guess I'd like to mention from a psychological standpoint that there's a lot of grief and kind of loss for every individual. Um, that I find that sometimes working on that piece of it with families, they'll get a better understanding and a little bit more openness to discussing different options. Because um, you had mentioned that, and it's very common, your mom might feel that she's in, either in denial of how her memory is right now or unwilling to discuss it. Um, and that is very common with either developing dementia because it's it's hard as as adults. We really don't want to admit that we're losing some of these skills that we're proud of, living on our own, managing our own household, um, and also when our brain then is having a hard time processing and making decisions effectively, we will have times when there are delusions that we are fearful or paranoid, and although we as Family members, what we want to do is convince them that, no, that's not happening. Don't worry. They're not stealing it to be sure that they're, they're not, that it really is delusional beliefs. Sometimes what's more important is kind of joining their reality of, wow, it sounds really scary that you think that the neighbors are doing this. Hmm, let's see if we can work something out or who can we talk to to look at different options. So maybe a psychologist might have some ideas of how we can either ease some of the fears, anxiety. Maybe we can talk to a lawyer to see what options we have there. Um, but I oh, think you're really, so smooth. <laughs> you're like, let's go ahead yeah. and have Julie talk to mom. And I like what you said, which mm-hmm. is meet her on meet Julie's mom on her level to say yeah, not because, really you know, one of the things we've been 
I remember in medical school is don't argue with people who have dementia. You're not going to win the argument because they have dementia. And if you do win, they're not going to remember that you won the argument. (laughs) So check yourself when you're discussing something with someone who has memory impairment because you may be so adamant that you are going to convince them that's not happening. And yet you're really not convincing anybody and you're really arguing for yourself. Mm -hmm. So that's a really important point. Make sure that you meet the individual at their level and try and find out how they feel about it. That must be really scary if you think the neighbors are doing this. How can we address this? Who could we talk to to help us with this? And that's a really... That's a really slick way to just start the conversation going instead of, you know, not not that Julie's doing this, but, you know, come on, mom, that's crazy. They're not coming in in the middle of the night and moving your dishes in another place. That's not happening. You can keep trying to force someone to believe that. But if they firmly have this entrenched in them, they are not going to agree. They'll agree to your face and they'll be like, no, I said yes, because that God heard off my case. But I know what's happening. That's a really critical and i appreciate you bringing that up have you had situations where that's where that's been the case where someone really was brought in because they are in complete denial and if so how would you handle something like that with the patient that's in denial yeah yeah. how would you handle somebody who says i don't have a problem everyone else does (laughs) and and that does happen a lot um whether or not they're incapacitated or um just adults in general but I think it's about really reaching their experience and shifting the understanding of capacity in terms of also looking at what you can do and and empowering them because sometimes people are so afraid of losing their independence or hearing what they can't do um, that they'll shy away immediately. So what I do when I'm talking with patients, okay, what do you want to be able to do? Well, I want to be able to still do my arts and crafts. I want to be able to hang out with my friends and go golfing. Great. Let's find ways to do more of that. So if I'm finding ways that you can live the life that you want to lead, then there might be areas where let's have somebody else worry about that. Let's have somebody else you love and trust be able to manage that for you. You have more time to focus on how you want to live your life. Sure. Let them deal with the bills, deal with the taxes, deal with whatever, making arrangements if you have doctor's appointments so that you can focus on spending time with your friends and or your grandchildren or whoever it is that you want to spend time with. That's another really good idea is to refocus them to the positive and sort of step away from the whole, no, you can't, no, you can't, and move towards, yes, you can, and here's how we can help you to do it. Uh, Right. I am learning a lot myself. I'm Dr. (laughs) Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Tiffany Ann Yamamoto. She's a psychology expert at Hawaii Center for Psychology, and we're talking today about what to do when grandma or grandpa don't necessarily follow what we think they should. And when we come back, we also have Emily Kawashima Waters here. She's a legal expert, and we're going to talk about what truly is the responsibility of adult children who have parents that are previously independent and may or may not be so now? Is it really the responsibility of the family? And if they choose not to step up for a variety of reasons, whether it be bad relationships with parents or anything like that, 
what do we do and what are the what's the role of all of us in helping to support ourselves in the community but what are some of the legal roles that come on as well so when we come back we're going to talk about that if you have a situation where you're struggling with something related to your loved one and dealing with maybe their difficulties in getting older and and staying independent successfully we'd love to hear from you and see what challenges you have and maybe we'll have some great advice or maybe you'll teach me something always possible i've learned already today you can join us at 9413689 toll free neighbor islands 8779413689 we'll be right back It's the first event of its kind in Hawaii, VegFest Oahu, a gathering that will look at the link between public health and climate change. And we'll hear from the head of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Pacific Region Migratory Birds and Habitat Program. That's tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation. This week on Invisibilia, Lulu Miller travels to a town in Belgium called Hale. At the village of Hale in Belgium, it was well known that the insane have been placed under the management of the villagers. A place where, for centuries, everyday people have welcomed strangers with mental illness into their homes. Like a beloved aunt or uncle. That's on the next episode of Invisibilia from NPR. Wednesday evening at 7, following Counterspin. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Nohea Gallery, Kaiser Permanente, and Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio talking about that difficult conversation. What happens when mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, auntie, or uncle no longer can take care of themselves? And what can we do as a family, as a community to help take care of them in the best way possible, preserving their rights, but also protecting them as well? I'm joined here in the studio by Dr. Tiffany Ann Yamamoto. She is a psychologist at the Hawaii Center for Psychology and Emily Kawashima Waters, and she is a legal expert in the fields of what to do with capacity. So, you know, in the perfect scenario, Emily, people have done their estate planning and they have financial advisors and they've set everything up so that everybody knows who gets what if there's children and how is money spent caring for family members and it's all perfect. And in the real world, that doesn't happen all the time. So is there a legal responsibility for adult children to take care of their adult parent should the parent become incapacitated. Do the kids have a legal responsibility and or does it matter if they don't even live here? Um, well, if I could just backtrack because something you touched on just now with regard to financial planners and estate planners, um, I act, my, my practice specializes in the litigation side of probate and trust. So by the time a case comes to me, there's all it's kinds a mess. Of, it's a mess. There's all kinds of problems. There's family dynamics. Sometimes it's not a mess if it's a straight conservatorship, guardianship. But um, the a lot of the problems could be resolved had there been good estate planning. And there are so many great estate planners that know every scenario that could come up, are able to talk to families, 
are able to grow with the family dynamic as things change in people's lives. Um, having said that, with respect to a legal obligation, I mean, we would all hope that as we age, our family members will come around and, and embrace us and help us in times of need. That's not the reality. Um, and there is a state office called the Office of the Public Guardian. They do help uh, typically indigent people whose family members either cannot be located or they have no interest in assisting. And they will assign a conservator to come in and help the person with their estate. But that's a different process, and it involves um, APS as well and different agencies. So there's no legal obligation on the part of kids to help with their parents as they get older? The only legal obligation would be if mom or dad assigns or or has uh, their children as a successor trustee. And in their trust, it states, if uh, I become incapacitated, my son or my daughter will take over as trustee. Then that is a legal obligation. The person has to accept the role as a trustee. But again, a lot of people don't have those documents in place. Sure. So, you know, if I see somebody and they have three kids and this elderly person comes in the hospital and the hospital wants to discharge them and the three kids say, uh-uh, they can't stay here or I don't live here. I live somewhere else in the mainland or no, I work all day. I can't do it. They really don't have a legal obligation. We want ethically, of course, everybody to take care of their parent, but we can't force children to do any of the caregiving if they do not feel as though they are able to do so unless there's a legal document that says that they are the conservator and they're required to do so. If there is that document, then yes, they are responsible. No document, not responsible, may still want to help. And of course, we want to encourage them. But we can't say you have to because technically, nah. Right. And actually, what I see more of is uh, a number of kids wanting to help and having wanting to have more of a role than the other kid. And that's where family dynamics come into place. So like some kids say, I'll take care of dad and all of his medical stuff. And another kid says, no, you can't do that. I want to do it. Right. So you actually see the opposite of what I would expect, which is too many cooks in the kitchen. Too many kids want to take charge. That's right. As opposed to not anybody. Right. See, I'm learning so much today. Okay. Uh, we'll talk about some more about it in just a second. We've got B on the line from Kailua. B, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you. Um, and my concern is for people... Uh, elderly people who either have no children and no surviving children or children who live in another country and do not have anyone close that they can really rely on or trust. You know, all their friends uh, are of about the same B. age and likely to have troubles at the same time. So what can someone who is approaching um, elder, being elderly do to plan for their future and protect themselves and protect their assets? It's a great question. And it sounds like that sort of, hey, if this is you or if this is someone you love, you still are of sound mind and want to protect yourself in the future. This is where I would think, Emily, go see an estate planner and start putting some things in line so that you could even wind up assigning someone or even just having your own wishes. Okay, if I get to the point where I am unable to take care of myself, I want to go to this particular assisted living facility and here's the money I have to be able to do that. Yes. So you could actually work with an estate planner to identify somebody or to identify even a court guardian who could help you set up this plan so that should you not be able to answer or take care of things yourself, you won't be left out in the cold. 
Right. Estate planning is, in, I think your situation B is key, being able to write down everything, all your wishes and have them played out should anything happen to you. Sure. So that if you happen to be, you know, diagnosed with dementia, and I actually have a few patients like this. One of them, she's the only, she's like 95. She's the only remaining person in her family. And her husband passed away and all of her siblings passed away and she did not have any children. So she actually has a bank trustee and they administer all of her financial affairs. And she's in one of our assisted living facilities and all of the needs are taken care of. The bank is taking care of all of these things. They are paid to do so. And for the remainder of her existence, that's who's going to be making decisions for her financially. And then she's written everything out medically. So she did some top-notch estate planning yeah, before dementia occurred. Yep. Okay, we've got David on the line from Molokai. David, welcome to The Body Show. Yeah, I went through this seven years ago with my mother. My brother and I were in our 50s then, and we and mother was hitting 90, or about 90, uh, she was over 90, and uh, we were about 60. Anyway, we all agreed to go to court to have a guardian put over her. And, uh, the, uh, you know, a company, you mentioned that, and, you know, that be, I, I feel the best thing, and to have all those willing testaments, you know, we did that like 20, 30 years ago. So, and we did not fight about this. There was nothing fighting in court. It was like quicker than you would get a, a, a burger at McDonald's. And we all agreed. And mother, uh, we're from Seattle. Now I live on Molokai. Um, mother had a, uh, the court appointed guardian did everything. I'm not saying they're angels. For a little bit there, uh, over two years, they treated me like dirt. Uh, they were corrected. And they found her from the beginning. A beautiful assisted living, and that's where she was the rest of her life. And of course, she was losing it. And then the last three months, four months, it was really, really bad. But of course, since her health was really, really bad, it cost more. We all know that. And I heard in uh, Hawaii, the assisted living is about ten grand. Well, that means the house, you know, goes up for sale or whatever holdings. But she's happy, and I would hope everybody would be happy involved and not about material wealth or anything in a degree from the beginning to, you know, to ask the court for a court-appointed guardian. And it was my brother's idea. He's brilliant. And let me just delineate here also. At the beginning, in Seattle, a nurse or a social worker told me to contact AmericanVets.org. My late father was in World War II. And my mother got uh, t uh, a lot of money because I had a court-appointed guardian apply for, for this program. Sometimes it's VeteransAid.org. I think it's AmericanVeteransAid.org. And there's millions and millions of free money there, dollars. For, uh, well, Dad didn't get it, but for mother. All right, David. So it sounds like you did a fantastic job. As a family, you guys all came together and you made a decision that since none of you were going to be of the capacity to be able to handle this, that you would hire a court-appointed guardian. And I'm curious, Emily, is it that easy? I mean, David talked about it like as if his brother had this brilliant idea and then they just enacted that and everything was fine. I suspect, although it worked so great for David, it might not always be that easy. What is that process about and who does that? That's right. And in David's case, it was easy because I, I think because, as he said, everyone was in agreement. Everyone agreed. Yes. Yeah. And I did want to mention that there are uh, private 
guardians and conservators that will provide services for a fee. Um, you know, like as B had mentioned earlier, she didn't have uh, anybody to serve in that capacity. So there are options out there, including the banks. Um, but as far as when there's a dispute, that's where it gets very controversial when, you know, one sibling feels that the guardian or the conservator should be himself and the other sibling thinks it should be herself. And then they argue it in court and the judge who sits in equity, meaning he looks at the big picture and does what he believes to be the, the most fair decision for the protected person, will look at everything and, and make that decision. And sometimes it means neither of them. And, you know, that's the other thing that David mentioned is he, he said, I hope people would look at the fact that, you know, assisted living facilities are so expensive and people would not be trying to keep all the money from the person who needed it to be spent on their behalf. And I think sometimes in Hawaii, housing is so expensive. We have people who maybe a house has been in their family for generations and grandma needs to be in a care home, but nobody can afford it. And since they all live with grandma, they can't sell the house because now they're all homeless and now they don't where to live. And they haven't built up that financial ability to find a place and live in it by themselves because they've always been living with mom, dad, or grandma. So now we've added another level of complexity where there's the financial aspect of if I live with mom and mom needs to be put in a home and mom owns the house, do I have to sell the house to pay for the home? And the answer is actually, yeah, if you if you have to pay for the home. You would not be able to have everyone else pay for her care home while she had this potentially very lucrative asset that no matter how you structure it, that's still going to be looked at. And that's that's something that everybody has to consider. You know, you can't – Medicare does not cover for long-term care. And some of the long-term care insurance policies, which were so good maybe 20 or 30 years ago, now they're fairly limited. And they they may not cover for all of the costs or all of the needs of elderly loved ones. So now we're stuck with what do you do if grandma needs somebody to stay home with her or mom needs someone to stay home with her and everybody's working? A whole nother level of complexity. Uh, Dr. Tiffany, when you see people come in your office and you're dealing with financial stresses, their own personal stress. You mentioned earlier the parent is now becoming the child. There's a huge amount of of just overwhelming anxiety when people come in with all of that. Are there things people can do to help deal with that scenario? I saw somebody today who was in that scenario who a year ago this woman was living independently doing great and as time went on she started to have some issues and some medical complexities and now I don't think she should live alone anymore and she's living with her two children well her daughter and son-in-law they work all day Mm -hmm. and the last time she thought she could live alone she was in the hospital for two months so because she can't so when people come with all of these issues and this these major stresses in their life, where do you start? I think where I would first start is very much normalizing that experience for people that that's a common fear to either lose your independence, feel overwhelmed. But a lot of those initial fears, once you kind of have that open conversation about it, um, especially with the right either professionals or, or networks in the community, then we're able to either dispel some of those inaccuracies and help them be connected with the right people. Um, because you had mentioned with a patient of yours that there's that fear of 
how what it would be like to live not live alone anymore and that they may lose their independence. And again, I, I guess I'm really hoping that with these kind of shows and, and talking about it in the community, that there will be a shift in understanding what independence means. That does not mean that we're free from depending on others, that we do everything ourselves. In fact, I think focusing on independence and resources that allow us to have more independence, it means that we can really live the life that we want to li- live. So in speaking, I guess, with your patient and your example that you shared, it would be learning more about what's important to them, the values of being comfortable where they live. Sometimes it's just then about referring them to the right networks, like the Alzheimer's Association, Aloha Chapter. They have a lot of great support groups, networks, or is it about finding other individuals um, that they can talk to and open up with other family members. Because I think in our heads, there's very limited options. It means that we have to go into this care home or that area. When there's a lot of different either therapeutic or, or resources that are very helpful Sure, and I'll tell you, I've seen some families do some really creative maneuvering (laughs) where they stay overnight in mom or dad's house, or they live upstairs, downstairs kind of arrangement. Or I've even seen situations where, you know, one of the individuals, he kind of set up this whole really interesting gadgetry where he can actually visually check on mom during the day. He set up these cameras in the apartment, and he can say, okay, mom, I'm going to check you out on the camera and make sure you haven't fallen on the floor. And has actually found situations where she's been falling and she couldn't get up and she needed help. And then he's able to go help her or call the neighbor to come help her. So people can be really creative. I yes, guess that's yeah. the idea is think creatively because although, Emily, and you know, it's you're not legally responsible to take care of mom, but you would want to do the right thing. And if you can coordinate with your siblings to do exactly what is necessary then start that discussion now. Start looking at trying to get everybody in the right place. Because sometimes, and we see this in Hawaii, you know, one sibling is here in the islands and then two or three others are in the mainland. Or, you know, one of our callers said, what do you do if they're in another country? And so if you can start figuring out a way to establish who's going to do what, when, why, and how now, you don't have to wait until it becomes scary scenario. That's right. And I have cases with co-guardians and co-conservators that siblings serve, but something that Tiffany raised, which is uh, increasing the awareness of incapacity of dementia and how they can be vulnerable is really important because then healthcare providers, legal uh, advisors, estate planners, psychologists can all chime in. And then we can all hopefully help that individual because there's nothing scarier. And often I'll sit in the office and I'll see some of my older patients come in and I'll be like, sometimes I'll be like, boy, I hope I'm as healthy as that person when I'm that age. Or, oh, I can't imagine what I would do if I was struggling with those issues. And so for all of us, when we see our loved ones to really just take a look and say, what can we do to help them? I like the idea of what what are they capable of doing and how much can we really help them to figure out what they can do. Because a lot of times it's more about what you can, not what you can't. And Mm -hmm. maybe that is the definition of independence. I can do what I like, even though it doesn't mean I have to live all by myself. I feel like we need to do this show like every month to bring up some of these issues because we made a list of all these things to talk about. And I think we've gotten to like two or three (laughs) out of a list of 10 different areas. I want to thank both of you for being on the show and taking the time 
Dr. Tiffany Ann Yamamoto. You are a psychologist, Hawaii Center for Psychology. And thanks again to your colleague, Dr. Martin Johnson, for hooking us up because he had a great idea about the show. And I think we've touched, just scratched the surface on what we could do. So I do hope you'll come back. Emily Kawashima Waters, you also have an office downtown and you specialize in what happens when everything goes wrong and how can we make things go right. Thanks to both of you. If you want to hear this show again, click on our podcast. Our engineer, David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Koslovich. We'll see you next week.